Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. In the early 1980s, I was involved in a church plant at Vermont South, became known as the Vermont South Evangelical Church. Because it was a church plant, I had to seek some uh, additional part-time employment. So what kind of work does a a pastor uh, uh, look for and take up when he needs to do what Paul describes as tent-making? Well, quite natural for me as a pastor, as a pastor, a peace-loving man, I took up a position of riding shotgun in an armored car. I thought this would be uh, helpful, this would be good, and so with a Smith & Weston on my hip and a shotgun in my arms, I was quite safe and secure. My role was in the back of the armored car, and my responsibilities simply entailed Uh, lifting up the hatch to give out either salaries in in ammunition tins to the driver and partner who would take them into the business house and so forth, and then keep a look out. And then when they were ready to come back to the armored car, because sometimes they were bringing cash with them back, uh, they would radio me uh, to let me know that they were coming out. I would try and look around as best I could and give them the all clear, watch them coming out, quickly lift up the hatch, they'd throw in the ammunition box full of money, I'd close the hatch, they'd get on board, and away we'd all go. Clockwork. Easy. No problems. Except I'll never forget one morning. The driver and his partner had taken some cash into a large factory, I think it was probably... Uh, salaries for the staff, and they'd gone inside, and all was good and quiet, and then I got a call on the uh, radio from inside the factory, from one of the uh, the partners, and saying, uh, uh, we've uh, been delayed a little bit here, the bookkeeping is not uh, up to scratch yet, we'll probably be another eight to ten minutes, so don't be concerned. Good, okay. But about a minute after that, I got a call from Home Base. Now, they would regularly call to, for us to give a sit-rep report that everything was well and so forth. So I simply replied and said, uh, uh, yeah, yes, everything's fine, except uh, they've been held up for a few moments. You don't say held up when you're working security. All the bells and whistles started going off, and I had to say, oh, oh, oh hang on, hang on. I, I didn't mean literally that they were held up. Uh, they, they've just been delayed. Security is serious. And Psalm 121 is all about security. A song that would quieten the hearts and calm the fears of the people of God as they made their way up to the great festivals in Jerusalem. 
Psalm 121 actually comprises the second of uh, what we call the, the songs of ascent. That's Psalm 120 through to Psalm 134. And these group of psalms form the, the, the hymn book used by the pilgrims as they would journey up to Jerusalem. Celebrate Passover, Pentecost, the Day of Atonement. So what is here for us this morning? As we Christian pilgrims progress to our heavenly home. Well, I would draw your attention, first of all, to the pilgrim's testimony that you find in verses 1 and 2. The pilgrim's testimony. But before we look at the testimony, we, we have to look at the text itself because there's, there's a slight uh, uh, means of interpretation here. The, 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 the fact is, in verse 1, is the psalmist asking a question or is he making a statement? I lift my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. Is he, is he making a statement that he's been looking to the hills because he expects support and protection and security to come from the hills? Or has he lifted up his eyes to the hills and he hasn't been able to find any source of security and so he frames the words as a question. Well, the implication really is, and the clear understanding would seem to be, that verse 1 is not making a statement. It is actually making a question. And so the first two verses of the psalm are placed like an episode of Q and A. Verse 1 contains the question, and verse 2 provides the answer. The psalmist starts with what he sees. I lift up my eyes to the hills. So what do these hills represent? What are they portraying for us? Well, to be quite honest, we're not quite sure. But there are certain suggestions and good suggestions that can be put forth. What was he looking for? Is there in his heart and mind and spirit an anticipation is he looking to those hills that surround Jerusalem? Jerusalem, Zion, the city of God. He is now filled with anticipation that he is going to God. These hills that he's looking at, these are the hills of home, God's home. Here's the Lord's dwelling place. And so he's looking with anticipation of delight and desire and devotion. Anticipation. But maybe it was with a sense of devastation. Because the hills were the habitation of thieves and robbers 
bandits. Hills and mountains were dangerous places. During World War II, Mount Subarachi on the island of Iwo Jima became a place of awful bloodshed and death. The battle lasted five weeks. Some 20,000 Japanese soldiers died and almost 7,000 U.S. Marines. The hills were a place of devastation and great danger. Anticipation? Devastation? Or maybe I look to the hills but I'm aware that they're also a place of temptation. Because you see, in Old Testament history, hills had become the dwelling places of pagan worship. The place where shrines were set up, where sacred prostitutes, both male and female, were provided here you would find the houses for the, the Baals and the Asherah, the sun priests and the moon priestesses. And so it was to the hills that the prophets gave great warning to the people of God. The prophet Jeremiah declaring, Truly, the hills are a delusion. So the pilgrim is looking to the hills. But are they a delight? Are they a danger? Are they a delusion? So what does he sense that causes him to look? What he senses at this time is his own weakness and inadequacy. Because what is his question? Clearly the psalmist describes it in these terms. Where? Where does my help come from? He wants to progress in his pilgrimage. He wants to reach Beulah land. He wants to finish his course with joy. He wants to partake of the worship of Yahweh his Lord. And so the plaintive question is this. Where does my help come from? A help that will grant to me a safe and secure passage. He senses his weakness for the way ahead. And what a wonderful attitude to have. And what a necessary attitude to have for all pilgrims. From a quote one commentator, Jess Moody, he speaks of this desire and this need in these words. The idea that you can always fix everything yourself has caused the breakdown of more marriages, the heartbreak of more people, and the disaster of more businesses than perhaps any other idea on the face of the planet. What's the psalmist pointing to? What's the pilgrim noting? What's the commentator suggesting? The very culture of our day. The Bob the Builder mentality. 
We can do it. Yes, we can. We don't need any God or gods to help us. We're intelligent. We're told that, you know, this is the most intelligent generation. Well, if it is, God forgive us and God save us. But this idea that we can do it. But how does the Christian pilgrim progress? Listen to the words of the old hymn. We go in faith. Our own great weakness feeling. And needing more each day your grace to know. The words of William Williams. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak. I am weak. And that's what the psalmist sensed and was moved to ask. Where does my help come from? And so the answer, verse 2. Where does my help come from? My help comes from Yahweh, the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He's seen the hills. He sensed his weakness. But now he speaks. And here is his conviction regarding the Lord's care. And here, my my Christian brother or sister, here is the, the Christian's creed. For daily comfort and strength and succor. My help. How intimate. My help comes from Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. How cosmic. For as another has said, how massive, mysterious, and marvelous this world is. The one who created this universe, the one who sustains it, He is my security. He is my carer. The words of the 147th Psalm, verses 3 and 4. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars, and he gives all of them their names. What's the psalmist telling us here? Well, in in, in a wonderful way, and in a great contrast, we're being told that the maker of heaven and earth is also the one who heals and mends hearts. On the one hand, his creative greatness, and on the other hand, his comforting gentleness. The psalmist links heavens with hearts, stars with sorrows, great with gentle, creating with caring.
that the God who, who spoke this world into existence, who flung the stars into space, who causes the sun to shine by day and the moon by night, He is my helper. So what's the lesson here? What's the logic here? Well, simply this, my friend. Our Lord is adequate. Adequate for whatever we need. Whatever is confronting you, whatever is, is challenging you today, remember the Christian's creed. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That was the pilgrim's testimony. But now look at verses 3 and 4. Because that becomes the springboard, or his personal testimony becomes the springboard to speak about the Lord's sufficiency. His testimony arises because of the Lord's sufficiency. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now there are three little things to, to, to notice within these verses. The first one is grammatical. Grammatical. Do you notice that the psalmist moves from my, my help, verses 1 and 2, to he and your in verses 3 through 8. So that we may say that verses 1 and 2 are, are personal. The verses 3 through 8 are pastoral. You see, the, the, the thought is, the suggestion is that the, the pilgrim is, is walking with a friend. And so, Coming to that realization and giving that testimony, he now wants to encourage and to enrich and edify his friends, so he moves on to share his basis of comfort with his companions. Or it has been suggested that when Israel sang this psalm, part of the congregation would sing verses 1 and 2, and another part of the congregation would respond by singing verses 3 to 8. In other words, part of the congregation would raise the question, and the rest of the congregation would give the answer. If you want the, the fancy name for that, is it was antiphonal. It's been mentioned that I was pastor at Noble Park Baptist. Uh, we, we used to sing a hymn like that. Uh, some of you old people like myself with not looking at anybody with beards, but uh, you know we used to sing an old an old hymn called uh, "Art Thou Weary," and one side of the congregation would sing uh, "The Doors Locked." Art thou weary? Art thou languid? Art thou sore distressed? And then the other side of the congregation would respond. Come to me, says one, and coming be at rest. So you get the congregation singing to each other. And this is the suggestion that's been put here. 
But then there's a third suggestion, grammatically, and that is that the psalmist, the pilgrim, is actually talking back to himself. And the psalmist tells this frequently. You, you get it again in Psalm 42. He, he, he therefore is, is taking hold of himself and reminding himself of truths that he has been taught. And this, this idea of speaking to yourself is, my Christian friend, a very, very good discipline. To talk to yourself and remind yourself of God's truth. Too many times we listen to ourselves and moan and groan and complain and get anxious. We listen to ourselves rather than talking to ourselves and taking ourselves in hand. And this is what he's doing here. Talking to him, reminding himself of the greatness and the grandeur and the glory of his security. But then the second thing you notice here is theological. Because what characterized the gods of the heathen? What characterized the pagan gods? Well, we have one, one wonderful illustration in 1 Kings chapter 18. Remember Mount Carmel, the challenge of the Baals with Elijah the prophet. When they were building the altar and they, they were calling upon their gods and there doesn't seem to be any answer. And what does the prophet say to them? Oh, perhaps, perhaps he's asleep and he needs to be wakened. And this was part and parcel of paganism. Because the fact was that pagan gods were made in man's image. And nothing is more natural to man than sleeping. And so it was quite natural for pagan gods to have a wee nap in the afternoon. Don't disturb on the door. I'm sleeping. But not the Lord he who keeps, says the psalm, protects and secures Israel, and he does not become drowsy nor sleepy. That Yahweh's attention is constant, and his security of his people is ceaseless. Our God does not slumber nor sleep. And this is confirmed, and the third point I raise in these verses is this, this, this fact, this truth that God doesn't sleep is confirmed rather dramatically. You, you don't get it as such in the English version, but in, in the original language it comes out much clearer. If, you, if you've got your scripture open there, notice how verse uh, 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 3 and 4 are linked. Verse 3, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Mark that little word at the beginning of verse 4. Behold. Behold. What does what it convey? What, what, does it, what does it mean to behold? Well, the Hebrew term implies 
either a mild surprise or something dramatic. And again, you get it explained in the book of Genesis, chapter 29 and verse 25. Jacob has gone to Laban and he wants to marry Rebekah. But when he wakes up in the morning, who's he with? He's not with Rebekah. Who's he with? He's with Leah. And our English version says, he wakes up and he says, Behold, it was Leah. I couldn't have, I, forgive me, I've got a silly sense of humor, but I, could, I couldn't help but imagine that this was, this was very, very Elizabethan. You know, this is very Shakespearean. You know, that, 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 that here's Romeo, and he, and he comes home and says, Oh, behold, behold, here's, here's uh, uh, Romeo and Juliet. Here's Juliet coming. Oh, behold, I want you to see this. Behold, behold. That doesn't mean that at all. What does, what does Jacob say? He doesn't say behold. He says, Oh, no. It's Leah. And this is the, the, the element, the emotion, as it were, that you get here in verse 4. The psalmist says, Our God will not let your foot be moved. He will not let you slumber. Oh, no! Don't even entertain the thought. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Our source of security doesn't sleep. One commentator delightfully has described this as the, in the sense that our God is an insomniac. He doesn't sleep. Our comfort and confidence for life's journey arises, you see, from the very character of our God. And so the third thing I want you to see this morning from verses 5 through 8 is the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality, the progression that's made here. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you going out and you coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Six times in the psalm you come across this little word, keep. Six times he's talking to us about our security and our protection and our care. He's, he's drilling it into us. And he's saying this is our God. This is his nature. This is his promise. This is the word of our God who does not sleep and does not either lie down or tell lies. His word is true. And so we see repeatedly the certainty of God's promise. The I wills of our unchanging, unsleeping God. The all-knowing, all-seeing, mighty God. The scripture says the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. That his, his word is changeless, timeless, and his promises are everlasting and faithful and true. And you notice the progression. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. He will keep you going out and you're coming in. He will keep you from here to eternity. 
that our comfort and our protection and our future are all anchored steadfast and sure on God's inscripturated and inerrant word. The certainty of his promise. And then notice the closeness of the Lord's presence. The Lord is, forgive my terminology, but I think it's there. The Lord is our shade. He is our sunscreen. And he is our sanity. That's what he's pointing to here. The sun will not strike you by day. The reality of sunstroke, the heat in the Middle East, which can be so dangerous. The sunstroke can blind and that can kill. Hence, God is our shade. Just like that, you pull down on your window to keep the sun and the rays and the heat of the sun coming into your house. He says, God is our shade. It's a dramatic picture of his protection. And he's our shade on our right hand. He's, he's so close to us near unto us and then the imagery the nor the moon by night the idea from where we get our term lunacy or lunatic that the lord shelters his people from the forces that would seek to unhinge our minds that the lord will keep us safe and secure and seen in this mad, mad, mad world. Because stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding as he promised perfect peace and rest. May I put it to you like this? God is not a shift worker. He's always on the job, night and day, when it is light and when it is dark. When all around us is peaceful and quiet and it is well with our souls. And also near to us during, and to quote the words of St. John of the Cross, He's also near to us during the dark night of the soul. Those times when the Christian experiences grief and doubt, when we can't sleep, we worry over the day ahead, we think of everything that could go wrong, where there seems to be the hiddenness of God. Oh, he is there, but we, we just sort of can't sense him. My son-in-law, Harry, and my grandson, Luke, when Luke was younger, they used to play hide-and-seek. And I'm sure many of you mums and dads and everything with your kids have played hide-and-seek. But being Irish, they played it in a different way. Uh... And I think it's probably because Harry, Luke's dad, was probably lazy, but uh, clever, in that they would sit together in the lounge room. And young Luke would say, can we play hide-and-seek? And his dad would say, yeah, let's play hide-and-seek. So now, um, 
Where would you like to hide? And so Luke thinks in his mind where he would like to hide in the house. They don't move from the room and they don't move from each other until Luke says to his dad, yeah, I'm hiding. And so then Harry has to try and figure out, okay, are you hiding here? Are you hiding there? Hiding here? It's a great game. You don't have to move. You don't have to go anywhere. You just sit there. And here was, you know, here's Luke's hiding. But he's not really hiding at all in your mind. His dad's right beside him. And at times we think God's hiding. But he's not. He's right beside us. He's right beside us. So what do you do when darkness seems to hide his lovely face? You confess your creed. You remind yourself of what is real and what is true. That my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. For my friends, our God and Father and Lord is not some CEO sitting on high giving out his orders and directions. No, he is on our right hand. For what did our Savior even say? Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. And Eugene Patterson, uh, Peterson, in his uh, work on this psalm, if I may paraphrase him, says, the only serious mistakes we can make is to conclude that God gets bored looking after us, or that his interest in us waxes and wanes in response to our spiritual temperature, or we can't believe that he condescends to watch the soap opera of our daily trials and tribulations. The fact is, he is our help. Clearly and repeatedly, to drum it into our thick skulls, the psalmist declares, the Lord will keep you. Because my dear Christian brother and sister, there is a place in heaven that has your name on it already. And he's taking you safe home to glory. So let me conclude with this. Because some of you may be thinking, well, Brian, what you've said, that's really nice. Uh, good to know that the Lord doesn't sleep. Good to know that he's always with us. But uh, what about Daniel and the lions? What about the three friends in the fiery furnace? What about Nehemiah, uh, Jeremiah and his pit? What about Stephen, who was stoned to death. What about James, who was killed by Herod? What of Paul? Imprisoned, countless beatings, stoned, shipwrecked, hungry, thirsty, etc. You only have to read 2 Corinthians 11. How does this all fit in with Psalm 121? Well, can I answer in the words of the Apostle Paul? 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 16 to 18. 
As Paul awaited execution, he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. And then listen to what he says. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his kingdom. Listen to that again. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his kingdom. Does it sound familiar to you? Where have I read that before? Psalm 121 and verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. To the apostle, these words were trustworthy even in the shadow of death. So shouldn't we Now, friends, make no mistake, the psalmist is not painting or promising a carefree, troubled, free life. The Lord most clearly provides security, but he does not promise immunity from life's awful realities. Because in the Lord's wise yet mysterious providence, our weakness, our great sense of need becomes the stage upon which the Lord's amazing grace is displayed and His tender care is revealed. For you think of Joseph. You think of Elijah. How marvelous the mercies of the Lord that He puts us at times in need so that we may turn to Him, so that we may run to Him, so that we may taste and see that the Lord is good. That He will keep us from evil, but He may lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. So when the going gets tough, what do you do? You talk to yourself and you repeat the Christian's creed. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And what a way to start a day! What a way to, to face every eventuality. What a way to, to face eternity. Than to know that Yahweh, the mighty creator and sustainer, is going to lead us safe home. But I want to ask, because you may not be a pilgrim this morning. That is, you may not be a Christian this morning. Who will be 
your helper. When you step off the stage of this life onto the shores of forever. Who's going to care for you? Who's looking after you? Who's keeping your soul? Who Well, you think about that. Let us pray. Our Father, we cannot even begin to imagine and understand the vastness, the wonder, the magnitude of your keeping, caring, grace and mercy. That while we are able to repeat this creed, and while we are able to acknowledge that it is true, Father, we cannot in our minds even grasp the wonder of it all. But Father, we thank you that knowing our inadequacy and knowing our weakness, you nevertheless speak words of truth to us to calm our hearts and to give peace to our minds. And so therefore, Father, as your people, as we journey on to heaven, help us to remember again and again to keep our eyes on the keeper and to rest upon your word. And for any who know you not, oh God, help them to see they cannot do it themselves. Be gracious to us now, we ask, and receive our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.